And that's where we find ourselves, frankly, today in Ephesians chapter 3. In the midst of a discussion by the Apostle Paul about God's redeeming love and the implications that that holds for us as His people. We tend to take time in January and focus on very practical things and things that we as a church need to understand and know for the new year. Last week, we took some time in a Psalm of David, Psalm 103, to reflect on the fact that we are to bless the Lord at all times. This is because He is infinitely great, both in power and in love, and that is especially important for us because we are finite the opposite of being infinite. He is near us despite His great transcendent power, and we can trust Him. And that is of great significance for us because we are prone to fear, we are prone to wander, we are prone to sin, we are prone to try to control our own existence. We all struggle with that no matter how hard we want to believe it's not true. And therefore, we need to remember that there is a God who is worthy of our praise and our confidence because He is over all, and not only that, more importantly, He loves us. I wanted to take some time as we are now reflecting upon a really critical season of our church's existence, considering next steps for us as a church as to who we are, as we consider whether or not it's time for us to move into a new place, and we still don't know if we will or if we won't, brings to mind the really fundamental question of who are we? What are we to be? What are we to do? I really want to focus on the mission of our church, because as you think about something like a building, which is what we're facing right now and discussing this as a church, I want to talk about our mission after all, why do we need a new place? Is, is it needed? And if it is needed, why? That brings into question, what is that we do? What do we do as a church? One of the hallmarks, I think, of our existence, the, the very DNA of our church, is that we care very much about glorifying God through disciple-making. From the very beginning, that has been our heartbeat, to see disciples formed for the glory of God. That is the chief way that we can glorify God here on the earth. In two weeks, not next week, but the week after, the last week of January, we're going to talk about that. We'll see that in the last part of the section that Mark read for us in Ephesians chapter 4, where we are to build ourselves up in love, that the church has the capacity to do that under the leadership of its pastors. The church, therefore, is equipped to do the discipling ministry and the the body grows in love for the glory of Jesus into maturity. But if you look in context, there's some things that Paul says before that, before he really discusses the mission of the church, what the church does. He discusses who the church is to be, which is what we'll talk about next week. We are to be a unified whole. But even before that, he talks about the fact that if we're going to understand what it looks like and how we are to be a unified whole, we have to understand in whom we are rooted. So we have to work through this logically. Before we can talk about what it is we are to do, and even before who we are to be, we must talk about 
our very identity. So we're going to talk today about the purpose of the church in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. To make it very simple so you can follow the logic of the text, I'm going to put in front of you a very simple outline. First of all, verses 14 through 19 say to us, the church provides a context in which we know and experience the fullness of the Trinity. And then in verses 20 to 21, Paul goes on to say, the church is the primary means through which God is glorified in the world. Paul's letter to the Ephesian church has two basic themes. You have been reconciled to God through Christ. And now, God through Christ is reconciling all peoples everywhere into one entity, which we call the church, capital C, the church, Catholic or universal, of which we are just one local expression. So, Paul's themes in Ephesians that God through Christ is redeeming for himself a people The second theme being he's doing that in the context of the church. Therefore, we are to trust him and we are to love one another as we grow up into our head, which is Jesus, the head of the church. And so we find here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, really the purpose of the church. First of all, in verses 14 through 19, that in the context of the church, We know and experience the fullness of the Trinity. And again, secondly, in verses 20 to 21, that we glorify God as we grow in our understanding and experience of that. Let's read together these verses that Mark read to us a bit ago. Let's understand as we read so that we might walk away as better worshipers. This is God's Word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom Every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. Let's try that again. I want that to become a better custom here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a child, we would travel out to Colorado or Wyoming every other year. We would alternate. On the years that we would go to Colorado, we would drive through Kansas. If you've never taken that trip west, when you're a little child, it seems interminable, which is a big word for just really, really long. It never seems to end. Um, Once you leave, I lived in Cincinnati, once you got into Indiana, it all just seemed like one big, long, boring trip. But I remember when I was really little, and we would get through Kansas City a few hours beyond that into the west, we would start running into huge fields of sunflowers. And if we hit that at the right time of day, I remember all the time we would be in the back of my parents' suburban. And back in the day, my parents would take all the seats out of the back of the suburban, like there were no child restraint laws back then. 
And it was kind of like our fort for like two days as we would travel across country. And they would put blankets back there, and we always got new G.I. Joes and new He-Men and things like that. And those books that you would like use the secret marker and things would suddenly be revealed, you know, like secret code stuff. And we'd be back there doing our secret code books and playing with G.I. Joe and He-Man and Skeletor and everything. And my mom would say, boys, look at the sunflower field. And when I was a kid, um, we, would, we would, you know, pause from our playtime and we would look out the windows and wherever the sun was at that moment, these massive flowers, uh, this massive field of sunflowers would have every single stalk, every single head turned toward the sun. There's a scientific name for that. It's called being heliotropic. These various plants, not just sunflowers, are, are built in such a way by God under his great design to turn their heads, their stalks, their flowers, their petals toward the sun. It helps them grow. I remember being struck as a child thinking, how does that work? How does, how does that happen? They desperately need the sun. Otherwise, they will not be what they are to be under God's design. I think verses 14 through 19 of Ephesians chapter 3 in some way are illustrated by this simple truth. That we flourish whenever we are turned toward the sun. In this case, I am not necessarily just meaning the S-O-N, the Son of God, but toward the Trinity itself. What Paul is saying here to the saints is that they desperately need in their unity to be turned toward the heat of God's love. Why is that? Why is love so important? Well, first, God in His love gave rise to the creation of the world. As we saw in our discussion in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 through 2, which proclaim to us the creation of all things, is primarily a science text. It's primarily a reminder that that God loves His people. This world was created in love. Furthermore, we ourselves as image bearers were created as emotional, affectional beings. That is to say, God Himself has affections and created us in His image to also have affections. But the image bearers turned from God and the image was marred And yet right away, in love, God came to the image bearers, having fallen from grace, and gave them a promise made in love that a seed would come and bring redemption. And love was personified when the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Spirit, took on flesh and became a man and became Emmanuel, God with us. And because love holds the universe together, sustaining it, and beautifying it despite its curse. And furthermore, we as emotional, affectional beings, redeemed by grace, we need to remember that we belong. You see, our adoption, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, has been initiated, but it is not yet complete. Therefore, we are part of the family, but because of sin and brokenness and curse, The adoption is not quite complete, and until then, we will struggle with pride. Who of us does not struggle with pride nearly every second of every day? And this pride manifests itself in a a host of scary ways. 
We struggle with lust. It's not surprising that we desire things. God, God made us to desire because He desires. But because of the fall, our affections are often bent toward things that are harmful toward us. It's no surprise that we lust. Not only are we prideful, not only do we lust, but we often are very fatigued tired of doing the things that we must do each day, wondering how long we must wait. We are people who struggle with depression because we are affectional beings, and thank God that He made us that way rather than just being robots. Our emotions are often unhealthy, directed and bent in in very bad ways. And even if they're not bent in bad ways, sometimes we can't control control our emotions to the point that they They become something that we wish we could just discard. Wouldn't it be easier to just go through life without feeling anything? We're lonely. We're fearful and so many other things. And and therefore, it's important for us to know that we belong. When pride dominates, isn't isn't it comforting to know that God does not cast us off? When lust comes to the surface and we do wrong and and horrible things, isn't it a, a comfort to know that God does not send us away, when we are fatigued and we are depressed and at the end of our rope of strength or emotional health, isn't it of great comfort to know that God sees us and smiles upon us? When we are lonely, when we are fearful, isn't it give us great comfort to know that He knows our frame, that we are dust, and yet He is near? You see, the reason Paul tells us here in this section that we are to know and experience the great love of God together as a church is because love is the very fabric of this universe. It identifies the character of God, and he made this world to be a place that that love is experienced and understood. And Paul writes these things so that we know that we belong. We belong to the Almighty because of our sin, we do not deserve to belong, but because He has given us His Son and has imparted His Spirit to us, the great power and love of the Trinity is leveraged on our behalf. Think about that. So, we find here in this text is that Paul knows the frailty of the people to whom he writes. And we are no less frail here in 2014 in America where we frankly have anything we probably could want. And yet as affectional beings who yet live in a cursed place, we need to be reminded. Verses 14 through 19 are one sentence. It's a complicated sentence. Someday when we go through Ephesians verse by verse, we will break it down in more detail. But today I just want you to get the main thrust of this. Paul is saying to them that he regularly, I believe, would bow in submission before the Father and ask Him humbly to do something very simple. And that is that these people would know the love of God. You see, this Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, He is over all things. He he controls all things. He's, He's the sovereign controller of all things, and He is the source of all things. 
And yet, he's not just the sovereign controller. He's not just the universal source. He is the one who has given us the fullest expression of his love. When Paul speaks of the riches of his glory in verse 16, he is saying that this God is more than just powerful. That this God is one who shares himself with other people. First, he's given us his spirit. And so, Paul, when he's on his knees begging God for this most fundamental of things, he prays that these people would be strengthened by the third person of the Trinity, by the Spirit within themselves, their inner man, their souls. Then furthermore, in verse 17, that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh, who came and gave himself for his people, might dwell in their hearts through faith. So here's Paul's thought. I regularly ask the Father of all things, who has expressed himself in love and creation and given us his Spirit and his Son, that you might be strengthened and rooted and grounded, that's the last part of verse 17, in love. This is what I beg God for. That the power and love of the fullness of the Trinity would be leveraged on your behalf. And Paul prayed this prayer in faith because he knew God would always answer it. Paul knew that the church in Ephesus needed to know this kind of love. But the problem is we forget. And even if we don't forget cognitively, cerebrally, from an intelligence point of view, we forget experientially. That's why we scramble all the time. Do you ever reflect after some period of time, maybe at the end of your week or at the, maybe your birthday once a year, maybe at the end of a calendar year, you reflect on the, the time period that's just gone by. And you think to yourself, you know what, I've just done a lot of scrambling. I've run from one thing to another to, to find peace, satisfaction, happiness. Why is that? It's because God created us to, to search for belonging, to, to search for meaning, to, to be included, to feel secure, to feel safe. But sin and its great destructive power has, has shattered so much of that. And even for those of us who have trusted Christ and have been redeemed, we still struggle. And Paul knew this. He knew it for himself. And so he regularly, on behalf of the church, would, would beg the Father to, to leverage the power of the Spirit and the incarnate love of Jesus on behalf of the church that they might be rooted in what was lasting, that they would hold on to that. That like that great field of sunflowers, we would collectively have our faces turned to the sun, basking in the love of the Trinity. Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that he wants them through his prayers to have strength. This means that it's hard to do this, so strength is needed. That we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints, there's the collective nature of the church, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? 
He goes up, he goes down, he goes left, he goes right. The furthest extent of the universe is filled with the love of God. You see, this universe not only proclaims to us the majesty of his power in creation, it demonstrates to us the great love of God as well. This universe and its vast expanses hums with the love of God. It is filled with it. So what does Paul want for them? He wants them to know that the one who is love has leveraged his power and love on their behalf, and he wants them to know that, to not forget it. Because unlike that field of sunflowers, so many of us turn away, searching, longing for meaning, longing for belonging, and struggling to find it. The greatest expression of the love of God, of course, is the incarnation of Jesus. So Paul says in verse 19, he wants them to know the love of Christ. What's that love like? Well, it it surpasses knowledge. I think that means two things potentially. First, it's hard to comprehend. We could try for the rest of our days to to sing about it, to, to meditate upon it, to teach about it, to learn about it. And yet it still transcends our ability to articulate it perfect, perfectly. But I think it's more than just that. I think what Paul is also saying here is that it's more than just something inside of our heads. It must become existential. It must become something that we experience. Therefore, a person who can articulate Christian doctrine is not necessarily one who rests in the love of God. I can tell you that from experience. It is my profession to study this book. It is my responsibility to, to know these words so that I can, can explain them to you. It takes understanding to be able to do that. But it's possible to understand these things inside of my head and not know them in my experience which is why I struggle like you with, with my affections, my ability to believe that in spite of everything that goes wrong around me, that I'm okay because God loves me. It's why I run away. It's why I get depressed. It's why I struggle. So this love surpasses knowledge because it's incomprehensible, and it surpasses knowledge because it has to go beyond knowledge. It has to to come down into our our life experience. Paul ends this long run-on sentence from verses 14 through 19 to say that the ultimate purpose of all this is that we might be filled with the fullness of God. I think what Paul is saying here in sort of a grand, lofty way is he wants you to know the love of God to its fullest extent that you might rest in Him and love Him. I think that's the idea. Well, in what context does all this happen? Well, much like that field of flowers, it it happens in this context. Though there is a universal church, we are a local expression, and we learn about this together. The largest living organism in the world, according to some scientists, 
is a grove of aspen trees out in Utah. Um, aspen trees can, can recreate themselves. They can grow more aspen trees by either dropping seeds in a traditional sense, or they can basically clone themselves. And in dry, arid areas like the West, sometimes it's hard because of lack of moisture and so forth to grow by the traditional method of dropping seeds and a seed falling on the ground and it growing. So out there, often huge groves of aspen trees will, will basically recreate themselves from the roots. One such stand of trees in Utah is 106 acres, and there are 47,000 trees, but they've all come from one source. I think in some ways that kind of describes the church. If you go into that field of trees, this stand of trees out in Utah, you would not notice that they're different. You would notice they're different, rather. They look different. Every tree is a little bit different. There's different knots. They're bent at different angles. In the fall, whenever they turn, some trees will be a little bit more red, some a little bit more orange, some a little bit more yellow. They look different. But they all come from one source, and they stand together. That's the church. We'll see that more in Ephesians chapter 4 because we have one head. But we're like that. We, we exist under the love of the Trinity, and though we are distinct, we exist together, drawing our, our life source from the one. And we are, we are brought together because we cannot stand alone. You can't make it on your own. There are lots of good things to, to value and, and be thankful for in our country. We have freedom. We have all kinds of things around us to, that, that are blessings to us. We, we have things that we experience and enjoy here that, frankly, throughout the, the history of the chronology of humanity, they've never enjoyed. We're privileged here. And I don't think most of us want to just give that up. We're, we're grateful for it. But there are some negative things about our land, about the ethic of our culture. And perhaps the worst of all is that we have become so very individualistic. According to Paul in verses 14 through 19, this collection of the saints, this thing we call the church, is the context in which we are, are able to withstand the, the furor of the evil one, the reality of sin which is everywhere, the effects of the curse on the earth, the struggle that we all have with our flesh, our propensity toward loneliness or lust or depression or anger or fear. The body has been brought together so that we might remind one another of the source of all things, the one who loves us with an everlasting love that cannot be taken away. And so what is the purpose of the church, first of all? To provide a context in which we remind each other of this love. Do you feel loved today? And not only do you feel loved do you feel his love? Some of you can say, yes. I've been experiencing that recently. I believe that. Others of you say, not so much. I do feel lonely. I, I do feel afraid. I am scrambling. I say to you together today, my brothers and sisters whom I love, that whether we feel it or not, your Father loves you. And He has proven that because He has given you His Son 
And they together have given you the Spirit to give you strength that you might be rooted and grounded like that stand of aspens together. That is a living organism under the head who is Jesus. We stand together reminding each other when times are good and when times are bad that there is a love that pervades this universe and it is ours. It's hard because as we grow up, we learn that life is disappointing. Now, we have, we have seasons of, of probably sustained living where life seems to be pretty good. But I think we're always a little bit anxious that, that the other shoe is about to fall and, and, and something bad's about to happen. And we have this intuition that, that one day God will make it all new. But we don't know how long that's going to be. But while we wait, until He comes and, and fixes the fabric of the curse of this earth, we have something in which we can rest, and we are to do it together. So again, before we talk in a couple of weeks about what the mission of this church is to be, we must first of all talk about the purpose of what the church is. And it's first of all to be a place where the saints who are finite and weak and feeble, often prone to sin and doubt and frustration and anger and a lot of other things, can come together and have our faces turned toward the one, the source of all good things, the one who loves us infinitely, whose power and love are leveraged on our behalf that we might trust him because that's the only way that we can endure. I say to you in love, that if you remove yourselves from this context that Christ has designed, this thing we call the church, the collection of the saints, do not be surprised if you become anemic. Do not be surprised if your faith runs thin. Do not be surprised if doubt and frustration and depression and fatigue and so many other things dominate your thoughts. What do you need during these times? And by that, I mean these times of your life, the, the length of time you're here. You need God, and generally speaking, He manifests Himself. He manifests His love. He sheds it abroad into your heart through His Spirit, realized in the person of Jesus in the context of His church, which is not a building. It's not a formal institution it's a group of people. It's a family. Probably, when you're really low, your brother or sister may not be, and vice versa. Which is why we all must be feasting on the truth, deliberately turning our hearts toward the one who loves us supremely and reminding one another on the good days and on the bad days where our source of hope comes from. This is why preaching is important. This is why, why small groups where you study the Bible together are important. This is why basically, to not be legalistic about it, but basically daily feeding upon the promises of God is so important. 
so that we deliberately, despite the doubts, despite the fatigue, despite the depression, despite the propensity toward, to turn toward other things, we, we purposefully, deliberately in faith turn our hearts toward the one who alone can satisfy us. And when that becomes hard for a brother or sister, we come alongside them and we tell them and we remind them and we gently direct their affections back toward the one who has affections for them. That's what the church is designed to do. So Paul prayed for this deliberately because he knew in his own heart he turned toward other sources. And those sources always, invariably, without exception, ran thin. And at the point of emptiness, Paul turned back to the one who alone could satisfy him. We are the same. So Paul begged God to leverage his love and power on behalf of this church to root them and ground them that they would have confidence and peace. What's one of the most important things you can pray for this year? For you and for your church family is that we would know this fundamental thing. This will protect us from turning away. This will protect us from divisiveness. This will protect us from idolatry. This will protect us from sustained periods of doubt. Pray this for yourself and pray this for one another. And then you go practice it. Because if God loves us this way, if we have been brought into the family of God through this kind of love, should we not share as one huge living organism? Should we not share this love with one another? So, in other words, we not only remind one another of this kind of love, we, we demonstrate this kind of love toward one another. This is a costly love. The cost that it took for the Son of God to redeem us with, that's a costly love. If you're going to love like God loves, it will cost you something. All of your resources have to be put on the proverbial table, and you've got to be willing to dole them out. Time, money, talent. Will will you give of your best for those around you? God did not fail to give us what we needed. He gave us His best. He withheld nothing. And yes, God loves us, but one of the chief ways that He demonstrates His love toward us is if we will love one another. Will you do that in the coming year? To do that, you've got to be together. We say here all the time that it's important for you to have your radar on. One of the silly metaphors we use from time to time is that we are to have our antenna up, paying attention to the environment around us, noticing the needs of those around us. As the Father understood your needs, He did not fail to meet them. And therefore, one of the realistic and reasonable responses to that is we don't do that for one another. We don't forget each other, but we come toward one another. We move toward one another and we love each other in practical ways. You see, again, the church is the context in which we experience the love of the Father, believing that it is given to us in Christ, and then showing it to those around us. The first purpose of the church is that we are a band of people, a collection of people, a living, united organism that experiences the love of God and trusts Him. 
So in many ways, verses 14 through 19 are about rest. But it's not a rest that, that is inactive. It's a rest that, that fights for faith, and it's a rest that fights for, not with, for one another. But secondly, in verses 20 to 21, Paul goes on to say that the church really is the primary means through which God is glorified in the world. So, so Paul prays this long prayer in verses 14 through 19, one long sentence. And then in verses 20 to uh, 21, he has one more long sentence. And he basically says, after all this, may God be glorified. But it's going to be done in the context of the church. In other words, God glorifies himself through the church. It's connected to the previous verses because he says, this one, this God, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of the one who works in us, the Spirit. In other words, the one who who loves us is the one who sustains us, the one who gives us all things that we need. Who is this one? He is God. And, And the love that he shows us is a love that is incomprehensible. What is the future of our church? I hope the hallmark of our church for decades to come is that we will be a place where those who are infected by sin and all the ramifications of that may come together and be healed in Christ. And that healing we will grow as mature disciples and that we will do that for this community and we will do that around the world. When it really comes down to it, the future of this church is not about being impressive. The future of this church, by God's grace, if He will allow it, will be that we will see disciples healed and grown for His glory. That's, that's what we want. And all the things that are in front of us right now, whether it's a building or all the other things that we're facing right now, those things are, are very much subsidiary to our, to our grand mission. As I've already said to you, the mission comes after the purpose. And the purpose is, first of all, that we be the kind of people He wants us to be resting in His love and therefore glorifying Him. I think the logic in this text is that that God is glorified in the church as they experience and share His love. I think that's the basic argument here. What did Paul pray for? Paul prayed at the church would rest in the love of the Trinity. And in doing so, therefore, God would be glorified. This is very much connected to, to what Paul prayed for in Ephesians chapter 1. That God has shown us His glorious grace. He praises Himself. He, he brings praise to Himself. He incites praise for Himself as His grace is shared with the world. So how does God glorify himself in this world? Well, in a lot of ways. Perhaps the the most fundamental way that God glorifies himself is showing his gracious love to his church. And therefore, after Paul prays with great humility and longing that the church rests in the love of God, he then ends by saying, may God be glorified throughout all generations in Christ. And he expects the people to respond with, Amen. So, logically, what Paul is saying here 
is that as we experience the love of God, which transcends understanding, that therefore God himself would glorify himself through the love that we experience and share. God deserves glory. Now, God is glorious whether you esteem him highly or not. But God created the world that he, that he might be praised, that he might be glorified. And he created the world in such a fashion that the only way that humans would treasure him and know him and worship him is if his love would be shed abroad on their behalf. That is to say, because of sin, humanity rejected God. We turn toward our own pursuit of glory. But to fix that, God sent Christ to correct our, our mistakes, to correct our sins, to correct our transgression, to, to arrest us from rebellion and to turn us back toward him, to cease our incessant pursuit toward our own glory and to turn us back on the path of pursuing his glory. What would it take to accomplish that? It would take the power of redeeming love. So through love, we not only experience his favor upon us, We glorify Him. We worship Him. We esteem Him highly. And not only do we feel that and thank Him for it, but we are to live like that. So God created the world for His glory, and He's rescuing it for His glory. We experience that. We're thankful for it. But glorifying God must go beyond that. That is to say, we are to not only experience it and be thankful for it, we are to reflect it. So how will God be glorified in the church whose very fabric is held together by love? By not only resting in it, by not only esteeming it as our only hope, but by reflecting it toward one another. So how does the church glorify the God who is full of love? We not only rest, but we share. That's how God gets glory in the church. Now, we're going to talk about disciple-making in a couple of weeks, but, but I will say to you today as sort of a precursor to that, that, that we want this church to be a place that, that hums with the love of God as it is shared through its, through its members, through the living organism that stands together. There's a lot of things we don't care that much about in this church. We're never going to be super slick. We're never going to have a million programs listed on some page on our website. It's not who we are. But there's a few things we do really care about. We care about the glory of our God, and we care about people. And the most fundamental way that we can care about people is that we take them to God. We turn their faces back toward the source of love, and we help them grow in Him. So we care about glorifying God through making disciples. Therefore, we care about things like teaching. We care about things like disciple-making. We care about things like like loving, faithful community. It's hard to do those things well. That's going to take all of our time. So that's what we pour our energies into. You are a special people. Not because there's anything intrinsically good in you, just like me. There's not. But you're a special people because God has set you apart. You're a special people because God has shed his love abroad in your hearts. 
and you've responded to that in faith. I see consistent trajectory toward growth. I see consistent trajectory toward treasuring Christ. I see consistent trajectory toward loving one another. But we have to continue. As a collection of saints, we cannot become lazy. We must become the kind of people who who knows who we are, who knows our simple responsibilities, and does those things in the power of the Spirit well and faithfully. And then wouldn't we want to invite people into that? whether we're in a school or in a nice building somewhere, whether it's Sunday and we gather together to worship our God as the saints or whether we are scattered as individual disciples who make up the whole, wouldn't you want to invite people into that grand experience of knowing the love of God that is your only hope and it is their only hope? the one who heals our diseases, the one who meets us in our sickness, the one who knows our frame that we are dust and yet loves us anyway, the one who arrests us from pursuing self and transforms our trajectory toward worshiping him and finding meaning and value. Wouldn't you want to invite people into that? What's the purpose of any church? And by God's grace, this one to be, first of all, a context in which we experience the power and love of the Trinity. And that through that, verses 20 to 21, that God gets glory throughout the world. So, you know all these things. I know you do. But it's important for us that we remind ourselves of these things, that there is a God who is in no way diminished in power or in love, that He has given us all and more than we need, and that as we know this and as we share it, He gets glory. That's the purpose of this church. So I invite you to rest in that, and I invite you once again at the beginning of this new year to join in that for the glory of God and for the joy of your brothers and sisters. Let's pray.